We read from the Holy Scriptures this morning from the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2. Our text this morning is found in the last three verses of this chapter, 20 through 22. We hear the Word of God in Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Here begin the words of our text. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through 
the Spirit. Thus far, we read from God's infallibly inspired word. As I said, our text is found in those last three verses, Ephesians 2, 20 through 22. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, and do you love the church? Love for the church is a mark of the Christian. Devotion to the church of Jesus Christ is the duty as well as the privilege given to us as God's children. And the reason for this is to be found in what the church is. She is the bride of Christ. She is the dwelling place of God. She is the mother of believers. She is the body of Christ. You, Cornerstone, Protestant Reformed Church, are a manifestation of that body. And therefore, the believer in Christ loves the church even as he loves Christ. We give expression to that love as we gather on the Lord's Day, as we sing, as we did earlier from Psalm 84, how lovely, Lord of hosts, to me the tabernacles of thy grace. Oh, how I long, yea, faint to see thy hallowed courts, thy dwelling place. Think of Psalm 137. The mournful cry of the captives in Babylon who sat down and wept when they remembered Zion, the church. Jerusalem was a pile of rubble. Her honor lay in the dust and her people were scattered. The public worship of Jehovah on Mount Zion had been abolished. And their captors jeeringly required of them a song of mirth and joy, and yet their harps could not comply. No mirth, no joy was possible while they were separated from Zion, the church. And in Babylon they made a vow, O Zion fair, God's holy hill wherein our God delights to dwell, let my right hand Forget her skill if I forget to love thee well. Let my tongue from utterance cease if any earthly joy to me be dear as Zion's joy and peace. Already centuries before our text was written, the inspired psalmist of Israel sang, Zion founded on the mountain." God thy maker loves thee well. He has chosen thee most precious. He delights in thee to dwell. God's own city. Who can all thy glory tell? And this is really the theme of this whole epistle to the Ephesians where the inspired Apostle Paul describes the glory of the church in Christ Already when he begins with his 
apostolic benediction. And then he adds, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And that's the keynote here, in Christ Jesus, that runs through the entire letter, always showing forth the glory of God as it's reflected by us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have uh, that familiar contrast at the beginning of this second chapter, which we read. And you bought God. Paul describes our natural depravity as we are conceived and born in sin, reminding us that we were dead in trespasses and sins, a part of this present evil world under the power of Satan, fulfilling the desires of and the lusts of the flesh, by nature children of wrath, even as all the rest. But then, thanks be to God, you have the contrast. But God, rich in mercy, motivated by his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive, raised us with Christ, and even exalted us with him in heavenly glory. In Christ, all our salvation is complete and eternally secure. And Paul reminds us of the distinction between Jew and Gentile. For even while God was gathering in his elect from the Jews, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. Notice, having no hope and without God in the world. That's verse 12. Can you imagine A worse situation than that? No hope without God? But God now also gathers His elect from the Gentiles so that we who were afar off are brought near. The middle wall of separation is broken down so that we are no more strangers and foreigners, but we are fellow citizens belonging to the same household of God for Jew and Gentile alike. For all God's elect, there is that divine assurance, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And the Apostle Paul beholds the church, God's elect, holy, Catholic church. And he sees that church as she is being gathered in this present time, even as we are members of it, and as we as a congregation are a manifestation of it, and as we are even by the grace of God being used by God 
toward the ingathering of the saints and the completion of God's church, His house, even in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in this light that we consider our text this morning under the theme, Building the House of God. And we notice, first of all, that house. Secondly, the foundation. And very prominently, the cornerstone. And finally, the construction. The apostle is plainly using a figure here, and yet, at the same time, he applies the figure to its reality. He uses the figure of a foundation, and he explains that this foundation is the apostles and prophets. He refers to the cornerstone and immediately adds that this is Christ Jesus. He speaks of the house built upon the foundation, fitly framed together, and points out to us that this house is the dwelling place of God, where God dwells through the Spirit. And then he concludes that we also are set into that building as separate stones, each in our place, and yet together making that perfect unity of the church, the house of God. Undoubtedly, the apostle had in mind the temple of the old dispensation. As you know, that temple was the center of Israel's typical worship. Canaan was the promised land flowing with milk and honey, but the center of Canaan was Jerusalem, the holy city, and the heart of the holy city was the temple where God dwelt behind the veil in the most holy place. And there in the temple stood the altar of burnt offering as a constant reminder that Israel was a sinful people. And yet at the same time, that altar symbolized the blood of atonement that took away the sins of the people. Christ was represented there in the priest as well as in the sacrifice. And through Christ, the people had access to the living God. There, God's people experienced covenant fellowship with the only true and living God. And there they experienced, received the bond of faith that united them in the Lord, even as they looked in hope for the better things to come. For they, the church, were, after all, the house, the dwelling place of God. God was in the midst of them, and therefore they stood unmoved. That's with this figure in mind that the apostle speaks of a building that is under construction. It's gradually taking form and shape as every stone is put in its own place, each one fitting in with all the other stones and with all the rest of the building, ultimately to reveal its complete and perfect unity in Christ. Then forgetting the figure for a moment and bearing in mind that these are not dead but living stones, the apostle feels free to say that 
this building grows. Grows like a plant, as it were. Grows to its full capacity. Or to go back to the figure again, grows into an immense and beautiful temple of God. It's important for us to notice some of the details about this house. Of course, first of all, a building calls for a plan. Even we, if we desire to build a church building or a house, carefully prepare the plans. We likely hire an architect to draw up prints of our proposed structure so that every detail of the house may be worked out beforehand, even to the minute parts. We plan the size and shape of the building, the number of doors and windows, and the location of each one. We determine where each room is and its particular size, and we decide upon all the materials that are going to be used, down to the electrical outlets and the heating and cooling units and all the other details. All this is done before any real work is started, even the foundation laid. Now this is, of course, but a vague earthly picture of God's sovereign and eternal predestination of his church. Eternally, God has before him his glorious house as it will be realized in all of its perfection in the new creation. We cannot say that God made those plans for his house or that he gradually formulated them in his mind as if there were a span in eternity when God was without the perfect house that he builds. God does not change, nor does God grow richer in carrying out his eternal thoughts according to the purpose of his own will. But that sovereign architect eternally has before him his Christ, the great servant in his house. And in Christ he has before him, even in his heart and mind, his church chosen in Christ unto everlasting life. God has chosen Christ as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the eternal cause and the ultimate purpose of all God's works. Who but the Son, the perfect likeness and reflection of the Father's glory, could hold such a unique place in the mind of God? God gave to Christ a people chosen in Christ to show forth the praises of God's name. That people consists of a definite number of elect, no more, no less, but each one chosen to have his or her own place in the church of God. Christ is the head. We are the members of his body. And as the head cannot exist without the body, so also the body cannot exist without the head. 
Christ is the cornerstone. We are the stones of God's temple. Each one fits into his own place according to the eternal divine wisdom. No one else could possibly fill that place. And without each place being filled, the temple would not be complete. Its unity, its harmony, its beauty would be spoiled. God would not attain his glory. But don't forget this. That also applies to the scaffolding of the building. Yes, God sovereignly chooses his people unto everlasting life, but he also determines the reprobate to perish in their sins. And even the reprobate, wicked, must serve their purpose toward the construction of God's temple, even as the chaff serves the wheat. In spite of themselves, they are the scaffolding used by God during this present time to erect his church. At the present time, we can often have difficulty distinguishing between the building and the scaffolding. But God knows his own. And ultimately, the scaffolding is pulled away and burned, and the building stands forth in all its splendor to the praise of the master builder, the Almighty God. In close connection, we must notice that the church of God answers perfectly to the plans and purposes of the architect in unity, harmony, perfection, beauty, But here, beloved, we must not regard the things that we see with these natural eyes, but we must look with the eye of faith upon the things that we do not see. In faith, based upon Scripture, we confess, as we will this evening, and holy Catholic Church that bears renewed emphasis today The very idea of a holy Catholic church as taught in the Scriptures, and as we have it specifically here in our text, it's ridiculed, scorned, despised. And shameful things are spoken of this church in her true spiritual essence. Men may often seek an outward, superficial unity, bringing as many together, as many people, groups, beliefs together as possible so that numerically the church may appear strong and pretentious in the midst of this world. The antithetical position of the church over against the world is frequently denied. Compromise with the world of unbelief is sought. Much of the nominal church busies herself with a social agenda and political affairs rather than with her spiritual distinction and purity. 
By doing that, the so-called church ultimately becomes the great harlot riding on the red beast, directing and cooperating with the Antichrist. The faithful church, small, becomes the object of mockery and hatred of the world, becomes more and more antithetically opposed to that world even as light opposes darkness. The true spiritual distinction becomes ever more evident and the individual members of the church become ever more strangers, pilgrims upon the earth seeking with increasing longing her heavenly perfection. More and more the place of the church is small in the earth. For the world of unbelief has tolerance for everyone and everything except the faithful church of Christ. Yet, the church is holy, even as a temple is holy. The individual believer is redeemed, justified, and sanctified in Christ. And so Scripture does not hesitate to say that those who are born of God are without sin. Still more, they are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. They are heirs of the life to come. They are the family of God, his sons and daughters adopted in the shed blood of Christ. They are Christ's holy bride. Together they are the stones of his temple. And so they are addressed as saints in Christ Jesus. Holy ones. That's our comfort. Even while we are yet deeply conscious of our daily sins and the sinfulness of that old man that we yet bear about with us, mindful of our guilt, even while we are often scorned in the midst of this world. Moreover, the church is one. The generations of the elect may extend from paradise in the beginning to the end of history, God's people may be gathered from every nation, tongue, and tribe of the earth. Outwardly, there may often seem to be far more division than unity among them as they are torn apart by sin and the evil threats and attacks of Satan. Yet, they are one in Christ. One faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, united unto one God, to whom we would bring forth glory forever. And therefore, there is a blessed communion of saints. That too we confess, do we not? There's that common bond of faith that unites us as true people of God and we're drawn to one another and we seek each other's welfare 
through that common bond of faith so that we can sincerely say, this is my father, this is my mother, these are my brothers and sisters who do the will of my heavenly father. And we seek to bear one another's burdens in the love of Christ. And yet we must note too that this building referred to in our text is a temple. Now a temple can be impressive because of its size, because of its style of architecture, because of its beauty or majesty. All this is certainly true of the temple of our God as will become evident in the new creation when that multitude which no man can number is united as saints in Christ before God's throne. But the real importance of a temple is the fact that it is God's house. God dwells there. God is the light that radiates throughout the building. Through every part, His glory shines forth. And so our text speaks of a habitation of God. It stresses that the church is God's home. And God's home means, in a word, fellowship. There we experience the covenant fellowship of God and his people. There is the intimate communion of life that is reflected here on earth in the relationships of family, especially. Husband and wife, parents and children. God is in the midst of her. It's no wonder that the psalmist almost shouted in ecstasy, glorious things of thee are spoken, city blessed of God the Lord. Oh yes, glorious things. For we, beloved, are God's house, God's dwelling place, chosen, prepared to show forth the praises of his name. And although the main thought of our text centers around this glorious house, there's strong emphasis that's laid upon the foundation and along with the foundation, especially upon the cornerstone without which the house of God could never exist nor could it arise to its ultimate perfection. So we would notice focus especially now upon that cornerstone. The figure appears more often in the New Testament along with the figure of the temple. It's taken, no doubt, from Psalm 118. There we read of the stone which the builders refused and has become the head of the corner. And that stands out as something very marvelous in our eyes just because it is so obviously Jehovah's work, His alone, as a wonder of His grace. 
And so it's not so difficult for us to visualize the picture here. Among all the various materials that were collected together for the building of Solomon's temple, uh, there's one large, seemingly cumbersome stone. And it simply doesn't fit with the plan of the builders. It always seems to be in the way. It seems to interfere with all their reckonings. This stone never fits until the builders learn that it is the chief cornerstone chosen of God and precious. And that, of course, was prophecy of old. Its real fulfillment came when Annas and Caiaphas, along with Judas Iscariot, King Herod, Pontius Pilate, even with the Sanhedrin and all the people together, joined to condemn Jesus to the accursed death of the cross. They found no place in their idea of the church for Jesus, the Christ of the Scripture, no more than do the modernists in our day. But even though they gave him over unto death, the curse. God justified him. God raised him from the dead. God exalted him with a name above every name, even as head of the church in the highest heavens. He is the cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone in ancient times was a very important part of the foundation and therefore of the entire structure. Today, as you know, a cornerstone is mainly symbolic. It's mostly ornamental. But according to the figure, as it's used in the Scriptures, it is the stone upon which the entire building rests. And all the other foundation stones lean toward that one massive cornerstone so that this one stone gives stability and unity and even beauty to the entire building. Christ, Scripture tells us, is that cornerstone. He is chosen of God as the elect The firstborn among many brethren, God chose us in Christ. And he sees us in Christ, and he blesses us in him, and he joins us to him in perfect unity with him eternally. Christ is the rock upon which we are founded. That's true in the most absolute sense of the word. And so Scripture says He is the bread of life and the water of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is made unto us of God wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. In one word, redemption. Our life is hid with Christ in God. As we said before, 
We can speak of a holy church because we are holy in Christ. We can speak of a Catholic church because our unity is in Christ. He is the fullness of all our life and salvation. But besides the cornerstone, there is also mentioned the foundation. And this foundation is referred to as the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now there's some difference of opinion as to whether the term prophets refers to the prophets of the old dispensation or to those prophets who were yet found in the early church. Arguments can be raised to defend either position, but without going into detail, I'm inclined to think especially of the prophets of the Old Testament here. It's true, as some would point out, that the apostles are mentioned first, and then the prophets, while in order of time, the prophets were first. But writing to the church of the new dispensation, the Apostle Paul could very well refer to the apostles first because they proclaimed the fulfillment of the promises that were spoken by the prophets of old. And surely the prophets of the old dispensation are as much the foundation of the church as are the apostles of the new dispensation. But the vital question arises, what is meant by these apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church? Surely this cannot refer to them as individual persons, but rather it must refer to them in their office, that is, in their capacity as prophets and apostles. And as such, they were the bearers of the Word of God. God filled them with the Spirit of Christ so that Christ, the great office bearer, spoke through them. And that which they spoke is infallibly recorded and preserved for us in the Scriptures It is these scriptures, therefore, that are the foundation of the church. That's more evident from the fact that the scriptures reveal to us the Christ. He's the rock, the cornerstone upon which the church rests and from which it has all its existence. We can't emphasize too strongly today that the infallibly inspired Word of God as we have it in the Scriptures is the foundation of the church. Many deny an infallible Bible along with verbal, that is word for word, inspiration. Many even deny the truth as it is revealed to us in the Scriptures. Many want no objective truth 
because they want no objective word. And then God becomes whatever we think he is, whatever he ima- we imagine him to be. And Christ likewise becomes a figment of the imagination. And faith then is no more than personal feeling or experience. And then you see we have lost all, absolutely all that is of any value in our lives. And from this results the sad tragedy that the power of the word is denied. And then the church institute means nothing anymore. We see it increasingly in our days. No commitment to the institute of the church. And then the preaching of the word is neglected or often replaced. And a dialogue or a group discussion or a movie or a play or liturgical dance is considered far more effective than that old-fashioned preaching of the word. And then the office in the church means nothing. Christ's word of power means nothing. So that all that remains is a form of godliness lacking the very power of the Spirit of Christ. And so we must, by the grace of God, maintain that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the infallibly inspired Word of God is the only foundation and the faithful preaching of the Word, no matter how it is ridiculed today, must be maintained as the divinely given means of grace along with the sacraments as instituted by Christ. Christ refuses to work through any other means. Must always go back to the law and the prophets, that is, the word, or there will be no dawn for us. The word of God is the only foundation upon which God builds his church. And finally, we must consider, too, the construction of the temple. And our text speaks of that also as a process that is carried on throughout history, even to the end of time. And we should notice then, first of all, the builder. And we insist from the outset that the builder is not man. How often... Man would like to take matters into his own hands and seek even his own means to supposedly gather the church or take credit for winning souls for Jesus. But God is the only builder. It's the plain teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism. In Lord's Day 21, question 54, we are asked, What believest thou concerning the Holy Catholic Church of Christ? And the answer is given that 
the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his Spirit and Word out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. This, beloved, is in harmony with Scripture, which stresses throughout that the Lord builds his church. From beginning to end, it's clear from Scripture. You can think, for example, of the book of Ezra. In Ezra, you recall, you have the rebuilding of the temple of God after the captivity of his people in Babylon. And how beautifully it is emphasized in the book of Ezra repeatedly that it was God's work. Repeatedly, Ezra proclaims, the hand of the Lord was upon me. God is the builder. And we hasten to add that God builds his church through Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. It is always Christ who is now exalted at the right hand of God. Christ knows his sheep and calls them by name and they come to him. And he speaks of other sheep that he has apart from the elect Jews, which he must also gather in so that there be eternally one flock and one fold. Jesus is the chief shepherd of his sheep. He gathers them by his word and spirit, always through the preaching of the word, through the working of his spirit in the hearts of his elect. There can be no preaching except Christ calls and sends. Those whom Christ calls are official ambassadors of God through whom the Spirit works. We must maintain an official preaching of the Word, an official administration of the sacraments. Pastors, elders, deacons who bring the Word of Christ according to their respective office, speaking and acting in Christ's name, There's no other means of grace. Christ refuses to work in any other way. And so too we must pray fervently that God will raise up men for the ministry of the Word, even in our midst, throughout our churches. The need is great. Let's pray that God continues to raise up men to serve as faithful elders and deacons in our midst. But then the text becomes very personal. It speaks, first of all, of the fact that each of us is builded together for a home of God in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the Word, 
has called us out of darkness into light, has worked faith within our regenerated hearts, justifies us, sanctifies us, preserves us in living hope, even unto the day of our perfect salvation. There is always the living power of Christ that works in the hearts of his people. We live, yet no more we, but Christ lives in us. And each one of us grows, as it were, into our own place in the body. And each of us ought to respect and appreciate each other in the particular place that God has given must honor and appreciate our diversity. Each stone is unique. Various gifts and abilities, various strengths, also weaknesses. That doesn't mean that we overlook sin or error, but it means that we would deal with it in the proper way according to the Scriptures and the church order. It means that we are ready and willing to forgive one another and to be forgiven. It means that we bear with each other's weaknesses. Each of us is united with all the other members of the body in intimate fellowship and love. Each of us is being chipped and ground and polished for our own place in God's temple, the place that only we can occupy. And so it is that when we are ready for that place, and that place is ready for us, heaven cannot wait, but we are transferred out of the church militant into our own place in the church triumphant before the throne. But in addition, meanwhile, we as willing instruments by His grace are called to work the work of the Lord toward the construction of His house. We, men, women, young people, children, must be willing instruments in God's hand prayerfully seeking day by day to carry out His will. Also in the midst of the church, the work we do in the church may seem so very insignificant, so insignificant in fact that it may appear to have no real or lasting value in the completion of that great temple of our God. Think of the psalmist. Just to be a doorkeeper in the house of his God. Just to have his foot in the door. Just to have even the lowest place there. Yet however small and insignificant we may seem in the eyes of men, God carries out his work even through us. And let us, therefore, day by day, labor 
prayerfully that together we may serve to the praise of the glory of the grace of him who has called us. And so, beloved, I ask you again, do you love the church? The great reformer John Calvin once remarked in his institutes that no one can claim to have God for his father unless he has the church as his mother. Make no mistake, the church is where Christ is and Christ is where the word is purely preached. Don't doubt the power and the sufficiency of the preaching of the gospel. Today many fear that the word can't gather the church. Many fear that the preaching of the word is not able to keep the youth. Many fear that it cannot comfort and strengthen God's people in all their needs. They fear that it cannot stand the test of so-called science. They fear that scholars are going to disapprove of that word and mock them. Be not deceived. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. Christ and him crucified is still the power of God and the wisdom of God. The preaching of Christ and him crucified is still the way of demonstration of the spirit and of power. Seek and ever abide in the faithful church, beloved. Love that church, which is to say, love this church. Love for the church is as a seed that is sown. It sprouts and it brings forth fruit. But let us understand that when we would sow in disgust and contempt for God's church, another kind of fruit is produced. A bitter fruit. God forbid. But when love for the church permeates our homes and our congregation and our sister congregations, yea, the church of Christ throughout the world, when it dominates our lives, then by God's grace we will see joyful sons and daughters singing with us, Blessed Zion. All our fountains are in Thee. Amen. Let us pray. Most merciful and gracious Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy word. Bless it unto our hearts, unto our lives. Through the working of Thy Spirit and grace, may we be builded up together, even into that holy temple, to thy praise and to thy glory. We ask it with the remission of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.
We sing together Psalter number 238. 